0: They were calling for storms the night before the bomb. Forecasts predicted high winds, heavy rain, and plenty of thunder and lightning to sweep through the desert. All of which meant that if the storms dragged on too long, the test would have to be scrapped. And the U.S. military couldn't have that. Too much time and money had already been spent on this project, and too many American lives had been lost in the war. And the U.S. generals in charge would be damned if this test was going to be called on account of a little rain. Don Horning was one of the scientists who had helped develop the atomic bomb, and the night before the test, he had been ordered to babysit the bomb in its metal shack atop a hundred-foot tower. That night, as thunder rumbled over the horizon, he passed the time by reading an anthology of humorous essays by the light of a 60-watt bulb. It was best at times like these to keep your sense of humor because Horning also knew that all it would take would be one errant lightning strike on the tower to wipe him out of existence. In which case, he was well aware that he'd never know if the atomic bomb test was a success or not. At 2 a.m., General Leslie Groves was growing so agitated he ordered meteorologist Jack Hubbard to sign his forecast predicting the storm would clear before dawn, or else he'd hang him. Groves then phoned the New Mexico governor and warned him may need to declare martial law if things went wrong but by 4 a.m the skies cleared and the test was given the green light to proceed shortly before 5:30, dozens of scientists and military personnel were all stationed in one of three locations overlooking site y the fake town built from scratch in los alamos new mexico Stern faced men stood breathlessly by wearing welders masks and observation bunkers 10,000 yards from ground zero. Others remained at a base camp 10 miles away, or at Campania Hill 10 miles further than that. There was still some debate whether even being 20 miles away would be a safe enough distance. Enrico Fermi had begun taking bets on whether the test would ignite the Earth's atmosphere, or merely wipe out the state of New Mexico. At Campania Hill, Edward Teller passed around sun cream. As the seconds ticked away at one of the S-10,000 observation bunkers, so named because they stood 10,000 yards away from the firing tower at ground zero, Manhattan Project Director J. Robert Oppenheimer leaned against a post and muttered, Lord, these affairs are hard in the heart. Then, when all was said and done, On July 16, 1945, at approximately 15 seconds before 5.30 a.m., the first atomic bomb in history was detonated. That morning, a second sun rose up over the horizon. The people who witnessed the bomb detonating that day couldn't get over both how beautiful and how terrible it all was. The first flash of light was so brilliant you could see it even with your eyes closed. Then the landscape became washed over with the most vibrant colors, a cascade of crimson and blue and purple and yellow. It was a jaw dropping rainbow of destruction that spread out in waves across the desert landscape. Every inch of the mountain range, from the highest peaks to the lowest valleys, were illuminated by this terrible light. Within a fraction of a second, a massive green ball of fire and light swelled up to a height of more than 8,000 feet, rising up until it touched the clouds. The term mushroom cloud hadn't yet been coined, but one observer later remarked that he thought the shape of the explosion looked a bit like a strawberry. In the explosion's wake, the desert sand all melted into a green glass sea. By the time the molten earth cooled and hardened, all you could see everywhere you looked was an alien landscape of translucent jade green glass, stretching out for miles in every direction. For a moment, as the dust cleared, there was breathless silence among the observers, a hushed reverence for the momentous thing they had done. Take a moment to consider this. For the first time in history, these men had harnessed the power of the atom to create the most destructive weapon humanity has ever known. And from that moment on, the world would never be the same again. Within another month, two more atomic bombs would be dropped in the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, bringing World War II to a fiery and abrupt end also eliminating as many as 250,000 people in the process. Immediately after the Trinity test proved to be a success, test supervisor Kenneth Bainbridge turned to Oppenheimer and declared, Now we are all sons of bitches. In later years, Oppenheimer would come to speak out against the work he had done to help steer the world into the atomic age. He would go on to warn the world about the great peril everyone now faced and about the terrible responsibility that man now possessed. During the 1950s, Oppenheimer would get swept up in the Red Scare and have his security clearance taken away. One other thing to know about Oppenheimer, along with being a brilliant scientist, he also had the heart of a poet. He'd actually named the Trinity test after a poem by John Donne. He later famously described the moment he witnessed the first atomic explosion by quoting the Bhagavad Gita, stating, Now I am become Death, the destroyer of worlds. In Greek mythology, Prometheus steals fire from the gods and is punished by being chained to a rock and having his liver torn out by an eagle, only for it to grow back and have to relive his torture over and over again. Oppenheimer drew a deep connection with that story, knowing now that mankind possessed its own great and terrible power, one that would change the world forever right up until the moment they found a way to destroy themselves with it. Oppenheimer wasn't alone in these beliefs. Several of the scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project would later express remorse over what they had created. That's often the double-edged sword of scientific advancement. So many of the greatest developments in science have come with both tremendous benefits to mankind, but also terrible consequences. Over the decades leading up to the moment where man first split the atom, there were several scientists who had signaled warning bells over the potential mass destruction that could be unleashed with this overwhelming power. And it's in one such story that we also find a tragic mystery. There once lived a physicist named Ettore Majorana, a man considered so brilliant that during his lifetime his name was held in the same regard as Albert Einstein or his mentor Enrico Fermi. But unlike many of his more well-known peers, Majorana shied away from the spotlight. And it's believed that he eventually became so disillusioned with the path of destruction he saw the world taking, that he made himself vanish without a trace. I'm Daytail, still holding out hope I'll get superpowers by being bitten by a radioactive spider, and this is The Conspirators. When we talk about the most brilliant minds the world has ever known, you'll likely first conjure up names such as Albert Einstein or Nikola Tesla or Stephen Hawking. These men became household names during their lifetimes because the scientific concepts they came up with were so groundbreaking and so far beyond anything anyone had come up with before that they actually changed the way we think about the universe. Then there's a Tori Majorana. You may not have heard the name before, but back in the early 20th century, Majorana's name was often held in the same regard as the greatest thinkers the world has ever known. Ettore Majorana's mentor Enrico Fermi summed it up best when he once said, There are several categories of scientists in the world. Those of the second or third rank who do their best but never get very far. Then there is the first rank, those who make the most important discoveries, fundamental to scientific progress. But then there are the geniuses like Galileo and Newton. Majorana was one of these. But Ettore Majorana was unusual in how little interest he had in publishing or promoting his own work. He thought publishing his work was banal. Majorana did science for science's sake. He looked at each problem as another riddle to be solved. And after he solved each riddle, he just moved on to the next one. In fact, Majorana had so little interest in publishing his work that on more than one occasion other scientists would get the credit for solving scientific problems that Majorana cracked before them. And yet, during Majorana's time, he remained held in the highest regard by his peers. There's a story that was later recounted by Robert Oppenheimer that illustrates this. During the Manhattan Project, there were three critical turning points that helped the scientists develop the atomic bomb. During a meeting of the project's lead scientists where they were all discussing the first of these roadblocks, Enrico Fermi turned to one of his colleagues and said, If only a Tory were here. Then, later on, when the group reached their next major stumbling block, Fermi once again exclaimed, This calls for a Tory." After that meeting was over, one of the U.S. generals in attendance turned to one of the other scientists, Eugene Wigner, and asked him who this Tory person was. Wigner replied, Majorana. The general then said that if this Ettore person was so smart, then they should bring him to America to help the project. But Wagner just shook his head and said, Unfortunately, he disappeared many years ago. Ettore Maiorano was born on August 5, 1906 in Catania, Sicily. He came from a successful scientific family. His father, Fabio, was an engineer and later administrator in the Italian telephone and telegraph industries. Ettore's uncle, Curino. Was a professor in experimental physics at the University of Bologna. From an early age, Atori was considered to be a child prodigy. Even as a young boy, he demonstrated an almost superhuman ability for mental calculation. From an early age, he could calculate three digit multiplication problems or the square or cube root of numbers all in his head. At the same time, he was also incredibly quiet and almost painfully shy. Ettore spent much of his life living inside his own head, scribbling down complex formulas and calculations on scraps of paper, and just as likely to tear them up and throw those scraps out as show them to anyone. Although Majorana started out his university studies in engineering in 1923, it was one of his friends, Emilio Segre, who urged him to switch to physics instead. Majorana took eagerly to physics, seeing the structure of the tiny subatomic particles that formed our universe is just another series of problems to be solved. His first major papers all dealt with atomic spectroscopy, based around concepts first written about by Enrico Fermi. Something else to know about Ettore Majorana, he would often obsess over the tiniest details of a problem to the point where he would ignore the obvious. Once, during an exam, his teacher called him out about one of his answers and asked him if he was trying to be funny. Ettore had drawn out a geometric figure that was correct in every way, but he had done so almost microscopically small in one corner of the paper and drawn it diagonally. It had never occurred to Tori Majorana that he could use the rest of the page to make his diagram legible for others. Majorana had basically no social skills. I mean, absolute zero. The first time he met Enrico Fermi, the physicist eagerly showed Attori the broad outline of the model of the atom he had been working on. This was something considered completely groundbreaking at the time, since scientists were still figuring out the framework for the structure of the microscopic building blocks of the universe. Throughout Fermi's impromptu lecture, Majorana listened intently but didn't say much of anything. At one point, Fermi also showed Majorana a table showing the numerical calculations he had done to prove his theoretical model was viable. Then when Fermi was done, Majorana abruptly got up and left the man's office without saying a word, leaving Fermi dumbfounded. But then the next day, Majorana came bursting back into Fermi's office unannounced. And without even saying as much as hello, he demanded to see Fermi's model of the atom again. He then took a tiny folded piece of paper out of his pocket and showed it to Fermi. It was the same table he had seen for only a few minutes the day before. Majorana had gone ahead and redrawn it, and recalculated everything overnight. Vittorio Majorana would go on to join Fermi and his group of gifted young scientists that came to be known as the Boys of Via Panasperna. These men would go on to make many of the discoveries about the structure of the atom that we teach in science lessons today. These were many of the same discoveries that would eventually lead to the construction of the first nuclear reactor, as well as the atomic bomb. Most of the members of this group were given nicknames. Fermi began being referred to as the Pope, while Majorana became known as the Grand Inquisitor. Because of his frequent and often sharp criticism of everyone else, Often while Fermi was giving a lecture, Majorana would cut in with tactless remarks such as, Why would I be interested in that? That's below me. Or, That's such a childish way to do things. I would do this instead. Fermi quickly realized that Majorana wasn't trying to be rude. He simply had no understanding of social norms. So as time went on, Fermi began giving Majorana private lessons to avoid conflicts with other students who wouldn't understand Datori the way he did. By the end of the 1920s, physicists had developed a mostly working understanding of the structure of the atom. They had figured out that there were three fundamental subatomic particles, the photon, the electron, and proton. But that still left further unanswered questions regarding the remaining structure of the nucleus of the atom. The problem was that no one could figure out how multiple protons could stick to one another. Every proton has a positive electric charge, and anyone who's ever used a magnet before can attest that two like charges will repel one another. The answer was there had to be another fourth particle, one that was heavy like the proton but didn't have an electric charge. Frederick Joliot and Irene Curie began to think that photons must be the answer. But Majorani had a different idea. He went to Fermi and told him he believed, no, he was absolutely certain there must be another neutral particle involved. A neutron as it were. And of course, Majorana was right. Fermi realized how revolutionary Majorana's discovery was, and he urged him to publish his findings right away. But Majorana never bothered, and eventually the discovery of the neutron would go on to be attributed to another physicist named James Chadwick, who went on to earn the Nobel Prize for his theories about the structure of the atom in 1932. Soon after that, Werner Heisenberg determined that the nucleus of an atom was composed of protons and neutrons. Something also that Majorana figured out before any of them. Heisenberg ended up winning his own Nobel Prize. Well, Majorana never got the credit he deserved. But when Majorana heard the news that Heisenberg had beaten him to the credit, he just laughed it off. Over the years that followed, Majorana would go on to make other groundbreaking work and other chargeless subatomic particles like the neutrino. Among the many new discoveries in physics Majorana made included being able to calculate the way neutrinos could move through space and time. When he showed this work to Fermi, his mentor told him to publish his work so that he wouldn't get passed over again like he had with the neutron. But once again, Majorana didn't do as he was told, so Fermi wrote the paper up himself and published it under Majorana's name. One other aspect of physics that Majorana studied was the concept of matter and antimatter. Basically, the idea is that there are these two competing forces, matter and antimatter, that cancel each other out. It became commonly believed among most physicists that there must exist two opposing particles. One made of matter, and one made of antimatter. But Majorana came to propose that this model was all wrong, and that there was actually just a single particle. One that was simultaneously matter and antimatter, that could cancel itself out. This is something that would come to be referred to as the angel particle. A title which some people say was coined by writer Dan Brown in the book Angels and Demons. In the early part of 1933, Enrico Fermi suggested to Ettore Majorana that he ought to go to Nazi Germany to work with famous physicist Werner Heisenberg. This was an especially dicey situation, though, considering that Ettore's father was Jewish. Despite this, Majorana did go to Germany and worked with Heisenberg, and later on for a brief time with Niels Bohr in Copenhagen. But when Ettore returned to Italy in August of 1933, his friends and family all noticed he had become even more withdrawn and reclusive than before. If such a thing was even possible. To many of the people closest to Ettore, it appeared that he was working on something. But what that was, no one knew. He would often just snap at his colleagues and tell them, We're on the wrong track. Scientists are wrong. All of them. But even so, Majorana never told anyone what everyone was so wrong about. Ettore cut all ties with his friends and colleagues and shut himself away in a room in his parents' home. He gave up physics and instead began studying philosophy particularly the works of Arthur Schopenhauer. It took four years for Majorana to pull himself out of his funk. He finally emerged in 1937 and from there went on to publish another paper. This paper was considered such amazing work that it earned him a special appointment to become a full professor at the University of Naples. Majorana gave his first lecture as a professor in January of 1938. He was held in high regard at the university, but his lectures were at such a high level that hardly any of his students understood what he was talking about. Then, one day, two months into his teaching position, on Monday, March 28th, Ettore failed to show up for class. Prior to that, Antonio Corelli, the head of the university's physics department, received two letters over the weekend from Majorana that worried him greatly. The first one read, I made a decision that has become unavoidable. There isn't a bit of selfishness in it but I realize what trouble my sudden disappearance will cause you and the students. For this as well, I beg your forgiveness, but especially for betraying the trust, the sincere friendship, and the sympathy you gave me over the past months. He went on to say how much he enjoyed his time teaching at the university and was grateful for all the many friends he had made there. He added that he would cherish them, quote, at least until 11 tonight and possibly even after that. Strangely, Majorana also specifically asked that his friend give special regards to a student named Sciuti, someone he was not close to at all. Skiuti was the only person he called out by name in the letter. That first letter was sent on Friday evening, and on the surface it would seem like a clear indicator of Majorana's intent to commit suicide. But then another letter was sent the following morning from Palermo, about ten hours away from Naples by boat. This one read, Dear Corelli, I hope you got my telegram and my letter at the same time. The C rejected me, and I'll be back tomorrow at the Hotel Bologna, traveling perhaps with this letter. However, I have the intention of giving up teaching. Don't think I'm like an Ibsen heroine, because the case is different. I'm at your disposal for further details. E. Majorana Now, before you ask the obvious question, what's an Ibsen heroine? This appears to be in reference to the plays of Henrik Ibsen, who wrote two plays in which female characters commit suicide. At this point, Corelli was reasonably concerned about Majorana's well-being. At the same time, the second letter made it sound like the man had changed his mind about committing suicide. The problem was, Majorana still hadn't returned from Naples or wherever he went. Corelli wasn't quite ready to begin sounding all the alarm bells just yet, so instead he reached out to Majorana's friend and mentor, Enrico Fermi, who ran the physics department at the University of Rome. Fermi and Majorana had had a falling out a few years earlier, right around the time of Majorana's breakdown, although the two men did occasionally keep in touch. So when Fermi heard that Majorana was missing, he knew enough about his friend's personality that he became extremely worried. Fermi reached out to Majorana's family in Rome to see if they had any idea of the man's whereabouts, only they didn't either. Ettore's brother Luciano went to Naples to try to find Ettore. Luciano found Atori's hotel room from where he'd sent the letter. There he discovered that most of Atori's possessions were still in the room where he'd left them behind, all except for his passport. Atori had also left band another letter, this one addressed to his family. In it, he states his desire that his family not wear black to his funeral. He also instructed them to only mourn him for three days at most, then to simply remember him fondly in their hearts forever after. Again, this sounds like a clear indicator that a Tory intended to commit suicide. Luciano phoned the police immediately, and they conducted an investigation and were able to retrace Majorana's steps at least up until a certain point. They learned that on the morning of March 25th, a Tory Majorana showed up on the campus of the University of Naples and tracked down one of his students named Gilda, who was studying in an empty lecture room. This was strange because Majorana didn't have a class that day, and had never spoken to this particular student before outside of the lecture hall. So naturally, this came as a complete surprise. He handed the young woman a folder full of papers and told her to hang on to them, telling her he'd explain later. Only Majorana never explained anything, because after that, Ettore Majorana vanished. Police also learned that Majorana had emptied out his bank account just before disappearing, taking with him a substantial sum of money. They found that Ettore had traveled back to Naples from Palermo on a steamer the night of March 25, 1938. During that journey, he had shared a compartment with Professor Michael Strazzeri of the University of Palermo. However, no evidence of Ettore ever getting off the ship could be found. You also have to consider the oddly specific timing mentioned in this second letter to Corelli. In that letter, he mentions he hoped his loved ones would cherish him at least until 11 p.m. that night. While the boat Majorana boarded first, taking it from Naples to Palermo, didn't leave harbor until 10.30 p.m., meaning it wouldn't have gotten very far across the sea before his unusually worded deadline struck. But whether that was his appointed time to jump overboard or whatever it means remains unknown, because whatever was supposed to happen, it didn't end with Majorana's death, at least not just then, because it's believed that Majorana got off the ship in Palermo very much alive. Only then he immediately bought another return ticket, taking him back to Naples. And it's during that trip where Majorana vanished without a trace. Shortly after purchasing his ticket, Majorana phoned the hotel in Naples and told them to not give away his room. On the night of Saturday, March 26th, by all accounts, it appears Majorana boarded his return vessel, taking him back to Naples. There's a ticket stub showing he boarded the ship. But when the ship docked in Naples, no one saw Majorana get back off the ship. When the police put together the timeline of events, they immediately concluded the obvious. That Ettore Majorana committed suicide by jumping overboard on his way back to Naples. But there are several other clues that indicate otherwise. And some strange sightings that would be made years later that indicate an entirely different fate for the vanished physicist. Now, of course, suicide does sound like the most logical conclusion for anyone to make. Ettore had actually written what sounds like a series of suicide notes. It was also well-documented how depressed he had been. Four years earlier, after returning from Germany, Tory experienced what many people describe as a complete mental breakdown. He cut off practically all ties with his friends and family and isolated himself in a room in his parents' house, where he did nothing but study philosophy. The police assumed that the pressure of returning to normal life, and in particular to a high-stress teaching position, proved too much for the man, and he ended up taking his own life only two months into his teaching job. There's also another reason why the police would be so quick to write Majorana's disappearance office a of suicide. Remember, this was 1938 in fascist Italy, just as World War II was ramping up. The police had a lot more important things to worry about than some missing professor who clearly drowned himself. But in doing so, the police also ignored a lot of important details that might indicate Majorana disappeared under different circumstances than the obvious. For one thing, the route from Palermo to Naples the boat Majorana took was heavily traveled. Yet no one ever reported finding Majorana's body. It's also curious knowing that one of the only personal items he took with him was his passport. A Torre wouldn't have needed his passport to travel inside Italy, but he would have needed it if he intended on leaving the country, but more on that later. On top of all that, Majorana emptied his bank account before leaving, an amount that's about equal to $75,000 in today's money. And yet, to this day, no one knows where all that money actually went. The Majorana family quickly became frustrated with the investigation the police did into Atori's disappearance, so they decided to take matters into their own hands and continue tracking down witnesses who might have seen where Ettore had gone. One of those witnesses was Professor Stratseri, who shared the cabin on board Ettore's last known journey. He identified Ettore from photographs they showed him, and he also insisted that Ettore slept all the way back to Naples the following morning, which means Ettore probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to jump overboard in that case. Since the following morning, the deck would have been packed full of people waiting to disembark. This included a full army battalion waiting to return home. And yet... At the same time, no one ever reported seeing Atori Majorana getting off the ship with other passengers either. The Majoranas grew increasingly frustrated at the lack of answers in Atori's mysterious disappearance. They went to a close friend of Atori's, whose father just so happened to be an important Italian politician. That man sent word to the Italian secret police and got them to start their own investigation. Meanwhile, the Naples Secretary of Education asked the Chief of Police to step up the investigation Enrico Fermi sent a letter to Benito Mussolini begging him to do something. The family even petitioned the Pope for help. But none of these pleas for help appeared to get anyone any further to answers as to what happened to Ettore. But there are things we can surmise about Majorana's mental state based on things we know he did earlier. As you may recall, back in January 1933, Majorana went to Germany to work with Werner Heisenberg. This trip was actually directly related to the event that happened earlier when Heisenberg published his work about the nucleus of the atom, work that Majorana had already done but never bothered to publish. As it turns out, even though Heisenberg would go on to win the Nobel Prize for his work explaining the internal structure of the atom, a lot of the work he did remained incomplete, at least until a Motori Majorana went to Germany to help him complete it. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. Just one month after Majorana arrived in Germany, Adolf Hitler was elected chancellor, kicking the war in Europe into high gear. We don't know exactly what happened over the following months, but by May of that year, Majorana appeared to begin having a complete mental breakdown. His relationship with Heisenberg fell apart, as did his relationship with Enrico Fermi and his colleagues at the University of Rome. By the time he returned to Germany that fall, he locked himself away in his room, cutting himself off from the rest of the world. In the meantime, Fermi and his fellow physicists continued working on studying the atom, and in particular, ways to harness its energy. Fermi and his team figured out that if you shoot stray neutrons of an element at a different element, it will transform that element into a different radioactive element. These scientists worked their way through the periodic table, trying to see what would happen to each element as they bombarded them with neutrons. Once they got to the last natural element on the periodic table, though, uranium, they hit the radioactive jackpot. Meanwhile, some of Majorana's colleagues tried coaxing him out of his room and telling him about all the extraordinary work that was going on without him. But Majorana wanted nothing to do with it. He would only say that he thought his fellow scientists were on the wrong path. Although he never elaborated on exactly what he meant by that statement. There have been a number of physicists and historians who have studied the disappearance of Vittorio Majorana, though, who have a pretty good idea what he was thinking. Many people believe Majorana had already long figured out what would happen once Fermi and the others got to uranium on the periodic table, and it was nothing good. The reason uranium is the last natural element on the periodic table is because anything past that is highly unstable. In fact, some elements are so unstable that only a few atoms of them have ever been synthesized in a lab, and only for a few microseconds at a time. But when you bombard uranium with a bunch of stray neutrons, something else happens. The atomic bonds that make up the uranium atoms will absorb more and more energy until finally they break apart causing a massive explosion on an unprecedented scale in other words a nuclear explosion once that knowledge got out into the world it was only a matter of time before most of the world's superpowers wanted to be the first to harness that massive energy to create weapons that could kill like never before now we don't know that this was the reason for a tory nervous breakdown or for his disappearance four years later But if you follow the timeline of world events, it doesn't seem like that great of a leap to make either. Remember, during the war, many of the physicists Ettore worked with in Italy, including Enrico Fermi, went to work for the U.S. on the Manhattan Project to develop the nuclear bomb. Likewise, Werner Heisenberg worked with the Nazi nuclear program. It's also well known how much of a forward thinker Ettore Majorana was. He was like a grandmaster at chess always thinking several steps ahead of his colleagues. So it's not at all unlikely that he could see the writing on the wall with where all the experimentation with atomic energy would go before anyone else. There's also been additional speculation that perhaps Majorana's disappearance was actually connected to something potentially far more catastrophic he was working on. If you recall, I mentioned back in 1937 he published a paper that actually earned him the professorship at the University of Naples. Well, that paper was about the subatomic particles that make up matter and antimatter. In layman's terms, it's believed there are these two opposing forces, matter and antimatter, and that when these two particles meet, they release an explosive burst of energy, far greater than even that which is released by the splitting of the atom. Majorana came to theorize that this model may be wrong, and that there may be actually only be a single particle with a dual nature, one that is simultaneously both positive and negative. This is something that came to be known as the Majorana Fermion, or as it later came to be known in a term coined by Dan Brown, the Angel Particle. There are some theorists who have suggested that perhaps some foreign power during the war, like the Nazis or the Soviet Union, or possibly even United States intelligence, made Majorana disappear so that he could develop weapons based around the devastating power of the Majorana Fermion. But the simple fact that no such weapon is known to exist whereas we all know full well that atomic bombs exist kind of points to this theory being nothing more than science fiction on top of all that we do know that after world war ii was over the u.s made a point of capturing as many nazi scientists as they could get their hands on to work on the nuclear and space programs no record of a tori majorana being captured was ever found so it's unlikely the nazis ever get their hands on him Records show that once Benito Mussolini learned of the physicist's disappearance that he actually hand-wrote, I want him found, in large letters in Majorana's police file. Enrico Fermi managed to convince the Italian government to offer a reward of 30,000 lira, anyone who could provide valuable information leading to Atori Majorana's whereabouts. But no one ever came forward to claim the reward and his disappearance remained a mystery for decades to come. There have long been a number of conspiracy theories surrounding Atori Majorana's fate. Some wild stories even claim the man discovered the secrets of time travel and managed to travel forward in time nearly 20 years to South America in the 1950s, where he reappeared looking exactly the way he did the day in 1938 when he vanished. Although the idea that a Tori Majorana traveled through time is pretty far-fetched, there actually is a decent amount of evidence that he did travel to South America, only by more conventional means than opening a portal through the space-time continuum. In 1950, a Chilean physicist named Carlos Rivera claimed that he booked a room at a boarding house in Buenos Aires, Argentina, when he had a startling conversation with the owner. At the time, Rivera was doing some research that picked up on the work of the legendary missing physicist Tori Majorana, when the boarding house's owner caught wind of the work he was doing. She told him that Torre Majorana was a friend of her son's. Rivera, of course, thought the woman must be mistaken, or at least was confusing the man her son knew with some other person named Majorana. But she insisted that this friend of her son's was the very same famous Italian physicist. Rivera even showed the woman a photo of Majorana in a textbook, and she told him that this was definitely the man she and her son knew. She told him that Ettore Majorana had moved to Argentina and given up physics, instead returning to the study of engineering which is how her son came to know him since he was an engineering student. Despite how much Rivera prodded the woman for more information, she steadfastly refused to tell him where Tori Majorana was living, because she said it was too dangerous to reveal the man's location. You see, back in the 1950s, the president of Argentina was Juan Perón, and he had a notorious dislike of intellectuals. It's believed that many scientists were rounded up and forced to work on Argentina's own nuclear program. If Ettore Majorana was as dead set against any further work on nuclear energy as it appears to be, then the last thing he would want to would be to end up being forced to work on yet another country's nuclear program. Rivera left Argentina unsure what to make of this strange conversation. The idea that Tori Majorana had been hiding out in South America was shocking, to say the least. It wouldn't be until a decade later, though, when Rivera got even further confirmation that the woman had been telling the truth. Ten years later, Rivera was back in Argentina. This time, he was dining in a cafe and sitting there scrawling out some mathematical formulas he was trying to work out in a napkin. A waiter came by and took a glance at what he was doing. The waiter remarked that they used to have another customer who would come in every so often and do the same thing. He told Rivera the customer was a famous Italian physicist named Attori Majorana. The waiter was unable to tell Rivera where to find this Attori Majorana, But one thing to consider is that the cafe was located right next to the University of Buenos Aires School of Exact and Natural Sciences. That just so happens to be the same school the boarding house owner's son attended. That's not the only connection to that school that can be found with Majorana either. It turns out that Enrico Fermi actually gave a lecture there in 1934. Then in 1937, just a few months before Majorana disappeared, Another colleague of his also gave a lecture there. It's possible that Fermi and Majorana's other colleagues told him about how great life was in Argentina, perhaps giving him some ideas of his own. There is even some further evidence that makes this theory even more compelling. You see, one of Majorana's hobbies just so happened to be wargaming. In particular, he liked to chart the passage of naval warships across the ocean. Among the wargaming diagrams that Majorana left behind after he vanished was a chart he had drawn that showed a single passenger ship amid all the naval vessels, the Oceania. It just so happens that the Oceania was scheduled to travel from Italy to Buenos Aires on March 26, 1938, the day Majorana disappeared. Was it possible that Majorana got off the ship to Naples without being seen somehow? then changed his mind about taking his own life and instead decided that he would rather start his life over far away in another country? In 2008, a man named Roberto Fasani called into a popular Italian television true crime program, with a shocking story that only added to the theory that Ettore Majorana was hiding out in South America. Fasani claimed that he had actually met Ettore Majorana living under an assumed name back in Venezuela in the late 1950s. Pasani presented as evidence a faded sepia photograph showing a much younger version of himself standing in front of a shop window in Venezuela alongside an older man with thinning white hair. Pasani claimed that the man standing next to him in the photo was a Tori Majorana, and that he had been living in South America under the alias Mr. Beanie at least until 1959. According to Fasani, this mysterious Mr. Beanie was remarkably shy and rarely ever allowed his photograph to be taken. He also carried around with him everywhere a folder full of complex math equations. Vasani only managed to get the man to agree to pose for the photo by offering him some money. At first, Vasani didn't understand why the man was so secretive, but then a friend of his informed him the man calling himself Mr. Beanie, was actually a genius scientist named Majorana, and that he was on the run. Following this startling revelation on Italian TV, several other people began coming forward with additional sightings of a Tori Majorana living in Argentina, and later in Venezuela. Apparently, quite a few people knew the man's true identity, although this news didn't really become public knowledge outside South America until the 2000s. The photograph was turned over to the forensics department of the Carabinieri, the Italian military police. They did an analysis of the facial features of the old man in the photograph against known photos of Ettore Majorana. The analysis came back with 10 points of recognition between them. This was enough evidence that in 2015, the police released an official statement ruling that Atori Majorana was alive and living in Venezuela between the years 1955 and 1959. Despite this official statement, there are those who still insist Majorana really did jump to his death off the ship. And still others who believe that Atori Majorana experienced a spiritual crisis and joined a monastery where he lived out his life. Others say he took on a nomadic existence and chose to live the remainder of his life as a beggar on the streets of Naples. In 2017, several news reports broke that scientists had finally proven one of Ettore's greatest theories. News reports claimed that a team of physicists at Penn State and the University of Würzburg in Germany had finally proven the existence of the Majorana fermion, also known as the Angel Particle. For a couple of years, these findings were being hailed as one of the hottest discoveries in physics. But by 2020, other scientists began pouring cold water on the discovery. Some peer reviews of the article claim there were errors in the science, and at least up till today, the official line goes that no verifiable scientific evidence exists that the angel particle is real. In that respect, it's possible for us to draw a comparison to the fate of Ettore Majorana with the theoretical particle that bears his name. Enrico Fermi once told his wife that De tori Majorana was so brilliant that if he wanted to make himself disappear, that no one would ever be able to find him. And just like the Majorana Fermion is believed to be able to cancel itself from existence, so too did De tori Majorana cancel himself out of history. The Conspirators is written and produced by me and A-Tale an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. Wanted to remind you all that if you're interested in hearing even more Conspirator stories, I have a Patreon account set up where you can hear an ever-growing library of exclusive bonus mini-episodes. They're just like the full-length show, only fun size. Patrons of the show also get access to all sorts of other nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and much more. If you're interested in becoming a patron of the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another way I encourage you to help us out by leaving us a positive rating and a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. All your positive ratings and reviews go a long way to help spread the word about the show and helps us build our audience. You can find The Conspirators on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, and pretty much everywhere else you get your podcasts. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows as well. Elsewhere, I'd love it if you followed us along on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Feel free to drop us a line and let us know how we're doing in any of those places. You can even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.